Greetings, everybody. Welcome to this online webinar, a collaboration between the Cooper 9 Initiative, La Trobe Asia, and Nine Dash Line. My name is Hunter Marston. I am the Australia Associate for Nine Dash Line and an adjunct research fellow with La Trobe Asia. I'm also a PhD candidate at Australian National University. Normally, I'd begin with an acknowledgement of country to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands the Australian National University operates and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngambri and Gunawal people, past, present, and future. But actually today, I'd still like to pay my respects. However, I'm joining from the United States where I'm in Boston, uh, currently visiting family. So very exciting webinar we have today. I don't wanna go on too long to leave some time for speakers, but I'm very excited about today's event which is the first collaboration between La Trobe Asia, Cooper 9 Initiative, and the Nine Dash Line. When we first put our heads together to discuss some framing topics for today's event, this theme of mainstreaming feminist foreign policy arose very quickly. I think it's a critical one today as we examine how political decision-making has led to some of the worst human-made catastrophes from climate change to the current political chaos in Sri Lanka. Personally, I've benefited enormously from the tremendous intellectual energy of female intellectuals and leaders within my community at the Australian National University, as well as Nine Dash Line, and now through La Trobe Asia. The international relations scholar Cynthia Enloe began with a simple question, where are the women? Well, they're certainly here tonight. I'd like to next introduce the director of Cooperdine Initiative and um, co-creator Priyanka Bede. Priyanka is the founder and director of the Cooper 9 Initiative. She's a strategy and communications specialist with over a decade experience working with private and nonprofit sectors in South Asia, North America, and Europe. She was previously a consultant with the UN Non-Governmental Liaison Service in New York, and she's currently a visiting faculty at the Narsi Manji Institute of Management Studies in Mumbai, where she teaches business communication. With that, I'll hand it over to Priyanka and look forward to hearing everyone's remarks tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Hunter. You were close. It's Priyanka Bide. Uh, thank you for introducing me. And it has been wonderful uh, to collaborate with uh, 9-9 and La Trobe Asia on this very important conversation, the start of many more conversations, I hope. Um, we at Kubo 9 Initiative strongly believe that the world is in need of alternate approaches to decision-making. Um, as Hunter has rightly said, uh, there is a broadening of the area of what constitutes uh, the security of a nation to include from a traditional uh, military perspective also um, considerations such as uh, our response and uh, resilience to climate change. Um, access to resources and safeguarding of the economy. Uh, the dialogue around feminist foreign policy allows for such broad to take place. Today, 10 countries, Sweden, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, Mexico, Luxembourg, Libya, Chile, and most recently the Netherlands have adopted or announced the intention to adopt a feminist foreign policy. Each have taken their own uh, paths to such an adoption specific to their context. Sweden uh, has built greatly on their uh, WPS work. Canada and France build on their uh, external um, assistance and aid programs. Uh, Mexico is using their uh, feminist foreign policy as a path towards greater affirmative action. Most of these countries also take a, a more inclusive approach, widening than the definition or the concept of gender from the traditional binary definition. Uh, Germany, in fact, used the term gender mainstreaming for uh, quite a while before they formally adopted a feminist foreign policy. Then there are countries uh, such as the UK, Ireland, Scotland, Argentina, and Australia that do not use the term feminist, uh, but where gender equality is an important consideration in external actions and the related language is uh, included in uh, strategies or documents that are made public. The common idea of feminist foreign policy uh, being that one, um, to make systemic changes internally that allow uh, for an increase in opportunities for women to raise uh, to decision-making positions and two, to bring an inclusion lens to policy outputs. We are still in early times. There is no single definition of feminist foreign policy uh, and each country has created their own framework and taken their own path to such an adoption based on their own priorities. Since the early 2019, uh, Kubernetes Initiative has studied 
uh, with great interest the trajectory of this conversation of feminist foreign policy to understand uh, what is uh, what is being discussed globally, but also then to contribute um, a, a perspective from India through a consultative process. We have developed what uh, an Indian perspective could be and our own definition um, on uh, where we could begin our inclusion lens, which includes in addition to women, uh, those that are most vulnerable due to their caste, class, religion, and geography. Uh, we've come out with a recent report, which I will share very shortly on the chat as well. So in our experience, the word feminist invokes such a reaction that there is a risk of the feminist foreign policy being dismissed for being uh, a public relations stunt or something that should be a woman's issue um, and even uh, something that is a very Western concept. Uh, but there is a power to the idea. And if more geographies were to engage, it could evolve into a concept that has resulted from a global collaborative process. This webinar, we hope, will be a starting point for the conversation in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, a region of growing geoeconomic and geostrategic importance, uh, responsible for 62% of global GDP, uh, and home to 60% of the world's population. Relations between the countries in the Indo-Pacific are guided mainly uh, by security and economic concerns, uh, but we do feel strongly that uh, there is uh, the potential to bring an inclusionary lens here. Um, so, And so what is this inclusionary lens uh, and how uh, will the perspectives from the various countries that belong to this region differ? I will stop here and hand over to the wonderful uh, Dr. Bex Chatting, who is the director of Latrobe Asia and also associate professor of politics and international relations at Latrobe University. I hand over to you, Bex, to introduce our wonderful panelists and take forward the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Priyanka, and thank you, Hunter, for the introduction. Um, I'm zooming in from uh, Nam tonight, which is also known as Melbourne. So uh, that's Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nation. So I'd like to pay my respect to traditional custodians uh, as well. And it's a real pleasure to collaborate on this uh, event with Kubanine Initiative and Nine Dash Line. I'm really uh, pleased that that our first event is centred on such an important topic. Uh, and I'm particularly pleased to introduce our panel of experts. I'm particularly excited uh, that we have uh, these fabulous uh, experts in the room, uh, the Zoom room with us tonight. So I'd first like to introduce Dr. Samita Basu, who is an Associate Professor uh, in the Department of International Relations at South Asian University. Great to have you here, uh, Samita. I would then like to introduce uh, Dr. Elise Stevenson, who is a research fellow with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University. Uh, and Elise's colleague at the ANU, Dr. and Hunter's colleague at the ANU, uh, Dr. Maria Tanyang, who is a fellow and senior lecturer in the Department of International Relations. Uh, welcome to you as well. Uh, terrific to have you uh, all here with us. And there will be time for Q&A uh, at the end of the session. So uh, for those uh, in the audience, please feel free to put your questions in the, the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of the screen as we go through, uh, and I will pose those questions to our experts. But to get the, uh, the conversation started, I want to start with uh, you, Dr. Samita. From a South Asian perspective, what do you find are the intersections between uh, the women peace security agenda uh, and the evolving concept of feminist foreign policy? Good afternoon, and uh, thank you, Beck, for setting the ball rolling with this great question. Um, and it's a very useful one uh, for today's conversation because, A, globally, uh, invocations of feminist foreign policy usually make a reference to Resolution 1325 and the WPS agenda. So those links, intersections are significant. And B, in the South Asian region where um, the notion of feminist foreign policy is um, still at a pretty nascent stage, it makes sense to relate it with uh, the WPS agenda, uh, which has a much longer history. 
now specifically on the question of intersections between the two two points come immediately to mind uh, first uh, let's consider the issue of institutionalization uh, mostly relating to government machinery now only three countries um, in the region have developed wps national action plans nepal in 2011 afghanistan in 2015 and bangladesh in 2019 and of the three, the lead agencies in the development of uh, the NAPs in Afghanistan and Bangladesh were their respective uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Nepal's was developed by its Ministry of Peace and Reconstruction, but also with the involvement of civil society organizations, local government bodies, and international agencies. Uh, India and Pakistan the two larger countries in the region, which incidentally do not have uh, national action plans, appear to have an outward orientation when it comes to the WPS agenda. So unlike the smaller countries, they do not consider it really for local implementation, but related to, for example, their peacekeeping uh, contributions. And um, in a research I had conducted with a colleague on women peacekeepers from South Asia, uh, we found that both India and Pakistan associated the inclusion of women peacekeepers in their contingents with their normative commitments to UN policy. So that's an example of outward orientation. Now, all of this is to say that be the uh, WPS NAPs or WPS related statements at the UN, the foreign affairs machineries in the region have some experience of working with feminist ideas already which along with their experience of uh, engaging with gender-related processes at the UN, such as reporting to CEDAW or working with CSW, this, all of this provides valuable basis for the development of feminist foreign policy. Now, this one might say is more of a top-down approach. You're putting state at the center here. And that sort of brings me to my second point about what this intersection might look like from a bottom-up perspective. And on this count, I must say that I feel more confident about discussing a shared South Asian perspective, because while there is variation in specific foreign policy goals of the different countries in the region, there is a history of uh, women's groups and feminist organizations in South Asia connecting with each other, um, identifying shared concerns and advocating for specific policies uh, such as demilitarization, women's representation in peace negotiations, etc. I see Dr. Meenakshi Gopinath is here and she's absolutely been central to this whole process. Um, it is also worth noting uh, here that all of this actually predates the adoption of Resolution 1325. And across the region, um, there has been a mixed response to well when the WPS agenda did arrive with the adoption of Resolution 1325. There are those that have engaged with it, um, including in the development of national action plans, but then there are detractors and um, indeed those who continue to do feminist peace work but have not necessarily even heard about the resolutions. So what does this entail for feminist foreign policy? Well, for WPS advocates, uh, this is in some ways a broadening of the WPS agenda into other issue areas. Uh, for, the uh, for the detractors, not the distractors, uh, the detractors, I'd like to think uh, feminist foreign policy stands a potentially better chance be because it can have more of a local ownership compared to women, peace and security, which tends to be closely associated with its institutional home that is the Security Council and all that it stands for. Um, I've had the opportunity to participate in conversations on uh, FFP in India over the last couple of years. And the starting points have been uh, specific foreign policy concerns such as border issues, disaster management, development assistance, et cetera, and gendered experiences within the country itself. Um, and in fact, Kubanine has commissioned some brilliant uh, policy papers on this. Um, and, and perhaps Rianka could pick up on this point later. So very quickly, I'd like to conclude my response to this, this question by making a final point, which is that as with women, peace and security, feminist foreign policy also has to contend with the need for foreign policy to be aligned with domestic policy. Um, because, well, feminists do not see the traditional inside-outside divide in IR. 
So mainly it won't do to be gender progressive outside while serious domestic issues like violence against women or paucity in women's formal representation remain unaddressed. So here we not only find a crucial point of intersection between WPS and FFP, but a potential contradiction between the top down and bottom up perspectives that I've outlined just now. And this is something we could um, discuss further in the Q&A. And I'll stop there. Thank you for that. That's a really fascinating uh, sort of opening picture about the relationship between these concepts. Uh, but I wanted to uh, just follow up uh, with you on that, Samita, about the challenges and opportunities uh, in adopting a concept such as feminist foreign policy. Uh, now, the first question was about Southeast, uh, South Asia. And as you point out, South, there's diversity, of course, within that region. So uh, thinking about India in particular uh, and in relation to your main area of research, which is the UN Security Council. Great. So on this uh, next question, thank you again. Um, I will begin by giving a quick snapshot of uh, feminist foreign policy conversations in India over the last couple of years. Um, and what I generally find is that in the text of the concept notes or in the discussions, feminist foreign policies come up, the experiences of other countries and so on. But one would be hard pressed to find a feminist in the title. This is something that Priyanka also referred to. So phrases that are used instead are gender sensitive foreign policy, gender mainstreaming foreign policy, and um, Kubenayan has currently settled on inclusive foreign policy, which um, reflects an intersectional approach to the policy agenda. Now, I mean, I don't want to be flippant about these, you know, use of terms, but because this is a complex issue. Uh, feminism is a complex concept it has many different histories so there is that as well but overall there is also this general concern that the term feminist would be off-putting to some if not a whole lot of those in the policy establishment um and i get this but that's perhaps the first challenge that we encounter uh, and to be fair one that is recognized within the community uh, where these conversations are happening so, but the issue is to what extent would this then end up being a narrowish women's agenda kind of a thing, which while crucial is not the end of what is hoped to be achieved through feminist foreign policy, which I for one see as a very kind of transformative approach to uh, international politics. The second challenge is to ensure that the foreign policy establishment listens closely to civil society actors especially women's groups, Dalit organizations, those working on issues of food security, climate change, et cetera, who have a more nuanced understanding of the issues at hand. And I, I really like the idea that feminist foreign policy is also supposed to be more representative. It is not something that's just devised by a few elites who are sitting in the capitals of the, the countries. So, you know, for example, a Delhi bureau, uh, based bureaucrat's uh, understanding of border, border issues and its gendered implications would be different from those uh, who, you know, from that of those who are actually living there. So bridging existing gaps in lived realities and formulation of policies regarding, you know, let's say markets in India's border towns becomes important. Finally, and this is a tricky one that is not limited only to India's potential trajectory, to what extent can feminist ideas be aligned with the national interest of a country? We have seen Sweden and Canada, uh, some of the earliest examples of uh, feminist foreign policy development assistance. Um, and uh, they, they have struggled with this in terms of arms exports and so on. So this is a question that India would have to contend with um, as well. Um, uh, if, it, if it starts talking about feminist foreign policy seriously. But I want to end on a positive note by talking about opportunities. Um, and um, so first in this regard, India has been a longstanding critique of the contemporary world, a critic of the contemporary world order for which, uh, in which the rules of the game favor certain countries of the global north, especially those that are permanent five members of the Security Council. And this critique is very in line with that of feminist security scholars. Um, 
So India has the opportunity to realize the transformative potential of feminist foreign policy. Um, and I should clarify here that these closing comments are really based primarily on my research uh, on India's engagement with gender issues at the UN Security Council, as Beck, you kindly mentioned as well. So uh, India, for instance, largely eschews um, use of force, including in peace operation. So it lays more emphasis on diplomatic measures, peace building of efforts, conflict prevention, support to local communities, etc. And that, I would say, is again very in line with feminist foreign policy. And secondly, and this refers back to a point that I had made earlier about linking domestic and uh, foreign policies, uh, there are, in fact, a few domestic references to India's statements at the uh, Security Council open debates on women, peace and security. And these have mainly highlighted women's political participation in India, especially at the panchayat level. And stated that, and I quote here very quickly, that India's, and I quote, experience of mainstreaming women's leadership and political participation will continue to inspire our actions, end quote. Um, and this, this sort of idea could also, I mean, I've spoken to co uh, colleagues who work on health security and the experience of the ASHA health workers who are at the front lines in rural areas. Again, that is an um, uh, experience that, you know, India could consider when putting together its foreign policy for, for uh, you know, with regard to other countries, and especially because um, its experiences in terms of limited infrastructure in rural areas, you know, that can, inf and its work of, uh, and, and the work of the frontline workers that I just mentioned, that can then uh, inform its policies in other regions, especially of, of the global south. And with this also, just one quick point, which is, you know, finally, finally, foreign policy, of course, does not evolve in a vacuum. And that's true for Indian foreign policy as well. So the international context is crucial here. And the extent to which the challenges may be surmounted and opportunities realized would depend also on the international dynamics. Um, and on this, too, we can draw insights from WPS experience and not, you know, something we can discuss during Q&A, but I'll stop here and thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've given us a, a lot to, to sort of uh, think about as we kick off uh, the rest of the discussion. One of the points that I think is really interesting is this idea, perhaps there's a, a sort of a misconception that feminist foreign policy is like only about women. Uh, but what you point out there is that it's actually about representative foreign policy. And I think um, I would, I'd like to bring you into the conversation here, Elise. Um, you know, I framed a, a, a sort of question Question to you about feminist foreign policy placing gender equality as a central goal of, of foreign policy. But of course, it's much more than that as well. Uh, but I did want to get your sense of the, the sort of the current status of, of feminist foreign policy in Australia. It seems to maybe have a bit of an ambiguous status in Australia. Is it close to meeting the, the sort of ideals of, of the concept? Yeah, thanks so much. And, and thank you, Sumita, also for mentioning that around representative um, kind of foreign policy, because I think that's really, really key. And, you know, whenever I'm in circles that are kind of feminist or they're talking about gender issues, I really, you know, want to reinforce that we are talking about the gender spectrum. We are talking about not just women and men, um, but a whole spectrum of identities. And similarly, feminism isn't feminism unless it's intersectional and being able to see uh, kind of that fully representative nature of foreign policy, I think is often marginalised. So, so how do we actually apply this in a way that goes beyond um, perhaps just a very limited and narrow understanding of what feminism is and how it might apply to foreign policy? But here in Australia, I mean, I'm going to, um, you know, lean on some of the wonderful work that um, my colleague Katrina Lee Koo at Monash University has done around feminist foreign policy, where she argues that Australia's kind of uh, pro-gender, you know, foreign policy has um, kind of evolved and exists by stealth. So this idea that maybe we have some of this essential ingredients that could be considered part of feminist foreign policy but we also have a very masculinist kind of blokey sort of political culture and, and even foreign policy culture, which really restricts our ability to both um, celebrate and, and put forward 
kind of a more feminist agenda, but also to kind of uh, gain perhaps the, the, the steam and the power needed to really apply it uh, holistically across um, all aspects of our foreign policy. So I think that that's one of the first um, really big parts. And I think that, you know, to that um, answer, yes, we, we're, we're getting there and we have things like, you know, in uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we have some quite ambitious um, targets around, uh, you know, 80% of overseas development aid must have agenda focus and implementation. You know, we have things like um, the Women in Leadership Strategy aiming to uh, kind of redress or address um, imbalances in our foreign, foreign policy machinery. We have work that's being done in the Pacific with women leaders or around gender equality that all kind of reinforce a more feminist or uh, kind of gender, pro-gender orientation to our foreign policy. But I'd also say that we can't actually stand up and label it fully. And I think that there's real value in being able to name a feminist foreign policy because as it is, we're seeing action that is pocketed and siloed. Um, often actions are taken up by individual leaders who have been able to push through a more feminist agenda to the foreign policy. So it's not really reflective of a structural and systemic change. Um, and then also when we do have elements of progress, which we have had in our foreign policy or in our wider diplomacy, it sometimes limits our ability to see the challenges that still exist or the areas in which we haven't actually addressed kind of underrepresentation or heavily masculinized or just in unequal ways that we're dealing with our foreign policy so far. So I think that that is something to contend with. Something exciting, though, is that we do have a foreign policy commitment now around First Nations foreign policy. And I really see um, this as a very specific and powerful opportunity for Australia to lead internationally. There seems to be another idea as well that sometimes the Australian foreign policy or security uh, apparatus will pays lip service to women, peace, security, and those two ideas sort of stand in tension uh, a little bit. So uh, I'm wondering about uh, whether, whether you know, you see that happening as well. Yes, you're right. There is a tension there. And I, I bring it back to also kind of this evolving nature of inequalities. And so the way I see it is that we do have pockets of progress. And in some cases, they're really substantive. Um, they're very exciting. I think they're, you know, uh, quite progressive compared to to perhaps where we've come from. However, um, and I know Melissa Connolly-Tiley in the audience has done a lot of work around this and kind of the, the gradual shrinking of our foreign um, kind of policy or diplomacy machinery, we also really need to be thinking about um, the, the, the wider structural things. So the way I see it is that there's a lot of super progressive, phenomenal diplomats, foreign policy experts, academics who are out there doing some really hard policy work around feminist foreign policy. But if you follow the money and see who's got the resources, the funding, the power and the systemic, they're in the room, they're there when crisis strikes, you know, they're right on the front line, um, that's not necessarily feminist. And I see this kind of, I don't know, glass cliff situation or this situation where, um, yeah, we're getting some of these ideas, there's some real excitement to them, but they're not necessarily always backed up with the resource funding power and kind of overarching strategic um, systemic change that means that we truly can achieve a feminist foreign policy. So I think that that's um, also where we can pay lip service to it and say, well, we're doing it over there without actually having to reform our systems. That's one challenge. Um, I think, you know, thinking about other challenges and opportunities, I do think that um, we need to be able to celebrate um, the progress made or we need to be able to celebrate what it would mean to have a feminist foreign policy. We need to be able to talk about it. You know, as it is, it's kind of, you know, the F word is still contentious and more so in some national security or foreign policy spaces. So kind of removing the sting from it, but actually bringing in the true meaning of feminism as that representative and being able to see things from all sides and therefore develop, you know, more opportunities or more um, ways of analysing situations and therefore more and then better solutions. So I think being able to talk about it is really, really critical to our process. Um, I think that 
some challenges are that um, raising the profile of feminist foreign policy will also kind of give more negative ammunition for the, you know, maybe different factions that perhaps aren't so keen on um, feminism or feminist foreign policy. And that is something to to, to be real about. So uh, I think to, to conquer that, we've got some really wonderful initiatives out there right now, such as uh, International um, Women's Development Agency, IWDA, uh, you know, has done a lot of hard work in establishing an Australian feminist foreign policy coalition, which myself and I know a number of others here um, today are members of. Uh, so people who are practitioners, ac academics, you know, experts working in the field who are, you know, keeping an eye on the government and keeping an eye on this field and making sure that it does progress. But I think we also need strong leadership and commitment from the top. Um, politicians have indicated, and we've we've heard from a number of them in our coalition already, that they are interested, they want to know more, they want to know how they can integrate it. But we do need that kind of bold sponsorship. Um, and I think that the timing is right, right? So we've got feminists, uh, First Nations foreign policy. We've got this opportunity to really embed it as a feminist First Nations foreign policy. Um, and, and, I, and I think that by doing that, um, we've got a strong way forwards. If I could push a little bit further, I think that we need to also make sure that this conversation reaches the national security communities, which sometimes we can see the siloing between foreign policy and national security. Um, they're, they're really interlinked, but even where they're not as interlinked, we really need to make sure that these um, messages are getting across and the kind of opportunities and solutions and thinking and perspectives are being, in, you know, very deeply embedded in our national security community. And my final point is that feminist foreign policy has to be deeply intersectional, so grounded in, you know, the true intersectionality of um you know, all different people. So whether, you know, you're from the NT, you know, outback community, um, whether you are non-binary folk in far north Queensland, whether you're part of Melbourne, um, you know, trans woman, whatever it might be, I think we really need to make sure that we're centering uh, diverse people and diverse perspectives in this debate. Thank you for that, uh, Elise. I might turn the conversation uh, over to you, Maria. I know your research, which focuses on understanding gendered insecurities, contestations and transformative politics in crisis. Uh, in, in relation to the Philippines in particular, what are the key issues in understanding gender relations in, in Philippines foreign affairs? Thank you so much, Beck, and thank you to Elise and Sumida for starting us off on a very interesting and um, indeed, as everyone said, much needed conversation, especially now, as um, we've uh, mentioned the concept a few times, but we are living in what I think is a very crisis-prone world. And, and for me, where I draw my um, intervention um, in this um webinars to really rethink uh, about um, how crises and the context and the very diverse and different contexts that we find ourselves in is that we see that feminist solutions um, are most needed in times of crises, but this is also during these periods where feminist solutions are most excluded. And I draw on Philippines um, as a primary case study, but as I'm sure will come up in our discussions, um, a lot of these are um, a lot of these trends that I'll speak uh, about are more global and in fact um, very acute in Asia and the Pacific precisely because of the the many multiple and intersecting crises that we find in the region from um, ongoing authoritarianism and ba uh, backlash anti-feminist backlash to the very real um, and and visceral <clears throat> threats of climate change and an ongoing pandemic and so on. So in my research, and I think my contribution here is to really articulate also what is not feminist foreign policy and what we know from evidence is definitely not generative of feminist solutions. And, um, and that is through the concept of state hypermasculinity. 
And in my work looking at um, the last six years under uh, now former President Rodrigo Duterte and now in the current um, President um, Marcos Jr., the son of the former dictator, it is very difficult not to um, face and challenge state hypermasculinity. State hypermasculinity and building on a lot of feminist scholarship is um, has a lot of relevance for feminist foreign policy, particularly because as our other speakers have pointed that this is not just about adding women um, or individuals, but rather really rethinking the various structures and ideologies that inform how we understand and enact security and, and how the state is seen as a primary agent of both um, protection, but also um, perpetration of violence. Um, state hypermasculinity, I argue, has three main components. And this is why we know this is not feminist um, and how state hypermasculinity shapes um, the conditions that deny feminist foreign policy um, making and processes. First is the is the dominant um, or the template recourse to militarized security. And, and that in every form of crisis, from the pandemic that we are experiencing now to climate change, to economic crises, we see the knee-jerk reaction to militarize, to rely on military um, and police as um, uh, key agents of um, protection. And, and, and that has, as we know, um, exclude human and people and planet um, in um, the discussions and particularly the allocation of resources during and after crises. Um, the second um, key theme or key um, element is the, the posturing of benevolent paternalism. And we see this acutely in Asia and the Pacific, um, but of course, in many contexts too, even in Australia, where especially in times of crises, um, there is the foreclosing of deliberation and debate because of securitization and securitizing moves and, and how the state and particularly male dominated spaces, including foreign policy, um, reproduce this idea that the state knows best or, or that um, the key people in um, uh, authoritative um, bodies um, uh, are the sole um, producers of knowledge for the solutions necessary to address uh, whatever crises we are experiencing. And that then reproduces male dominance um, and masculinized forms of, of um, enacting and providing security. Finally, and this is something that is also very alarming, um, learning from Philippines and under the, the, the last six years in Duterte is the targeted domination and subordination of feminized others. Um, opposition, for instance, are um, really um, targeted. And we can look at a whole spectrum of forms of violent intervention from harassment and intimidation, especially for women in political office, um, to uh, really, um, you know, violent forms uh, of extrajudicial killings and, and, and imprisonment and, and so on. And this is something that we need to take seriously when we're talking about feminist foreign policy, especially in our region, where the cost of speaking up against um, strongman hypermasculine leaders is um, very bodily um, and it's a direct threat to life um, for women's human rights defenders, for environmental defenders, for sexual minorities um, and ethnic minorities and so on. And so this is, this is also very important, right? The cost of doing and enacting feminist foreign policy is also most intense in times of crises. Um, so I think the lessons then from learning from the Philippines, and I'm sure we can apply in other areas, is that we need to also interrogate what is the antithesis of feminist foreign policy? What um, is the, the very, what are the very conditions that prevent um, us from genuinely having feminist solutions, especially in times when these are needed the most?
That's a really, uh, so many interesting points that, and important points that you raised there. I'm particularly struck by that idea that in times of crisis, this is when feminist foreign policy is probably needed the most, but it's more likely to be sidelined. And that sort of hyper-masculine tendency towards carceral, militarised, securitised solutions uh, to, to crisis are actually not particularly helpful in, in dealing with those uh, with, with those crises and that the impact of those crises are often really uh, unequal depending on gender and identity and and other characteristics. So uh, really interesting. I did want to ask you a a similar question to the one that I asked Samita about how that then relates to uh, women peace security agenda in terms of, you know, you, you mapped out a range of crises, climate change, obviously the pandemic, but thinking in terms of conflict and what a, a feminist foreign policy approach might be able to bring uh, to bear in dealing with issues of, of conflict and, and violence. I think that's ground zero, right? I think the WPS agenda emerged out of direct activism um, uh, by a lot of women um, on the front lines of conflict. And and WPS um, was very much focused on really um, targeting that security was very much military, state-centric security. And and it's really both shocking and perhaps not surprising that these modes of of template security um, thinking and and enacting is replicated in all all other areas of crises. Um, And and I think it's really important as well just to kind of make the distinction that a lot of conflict spaces now are overlayered um, or overlapping with, you know, environmental crises and ongoing pandemic authoritarianism. So absolutely, as I've mentioned, the WPS agenda and there have been, um, uh, you know, a lot of new um, and, and emerging um, uh, politics to really articulate that WPS agenda is not just about conflict settings, but actually has stemmed from that radical activism of women, especially um, from Asia and the Pacific, that, you know, these are intersecting challenges. And actually, if you treat conflict as if it's separate from the disasters and, and the democracy, democratic backsliding and anti-feminist backlash, we're really not seeing the, the structures um, and how they are being reinforced, in, especially in times of crises. But absolutely, I think really rethinking that WPS was always that radical agenda um, and that was rooted in understanding insecurities in multiple and overlapping ways is an important start to realize um, feminist foreign policy, but also then that we start challenging how WPS, and I defer to um, my co-panelists and a lot of the speaker, uh, our participants who have been doing the work, uh, is that we find that WPS has been implemented in very narrow ways, again, and w- largely with um, the state um, being seen as a primary agent of, of providing security, and again, how when we look at the action plans um, of, of how WPS is being developed, Look at the agents who are seen as core to the agenda and who are producing knowledge on um, what are the um, ways in which WPS can be enacted. So these are important conversations that we can and have to have around the ways in which state hypermasculinity is aligned as well with WPS or is being aligned with WPS agenda. I hope that kind of answered that sort of question, but it is an opening. And again, I defer to my co-panelists because this is, again, um, something that has been done. And I look at particularly to Samita, whose work on this has been very um, uh, uh, important and, and has opened a lot of um, debate. Thank you for that. Uh, please, uh, audience members, put your questions into the q and I see that we have some already, which is terrific. Uh, before I uh, go to those questions, I would like to ask um, all of our panellists this question. It's been raised um, throughout the session. It was raised uh, by Priyanka in her uh, opening as well. This idea of the term feminist as being uh, an, uh, you know, a potential issue, the sort of what's associated with that term and whether 
whether or not it's uh, a Western construct. So I, I did want to get uh, the views on, on uh, all of the panellists. Uh, is feminist foreign policy a universal concept that can be applied uh, to all political, social and economic contexts, uh, whether it's in Asia or beyond? So, uh, Sumita, I might start with you and then I'll, I'll go to Elise and Maria. Uh, thank you, uh, Beck. Uh, and well, very briefly, the answers to both questions is a resounding yes. Um, and I'll just bullet point certain things um, in, in response to the first question about it being a universal concept. So the way, I mean, the way we can look at feminist foreign policies, also, and that's come through in all the presentations, that uh, we are really looking to bring people to the center of international politics, very broadly speaking. That's why we've used terms like representative, um, uh, representation, inclusion, transformation, etc. So that's one second. Uh, finding common, I, I think it helps us to find common ground between peoples and states' engagement with the international. And if in the process it makes state institutions, um, you know, work better for people, that's great. Um, and thirdly, specifically with regard to security, which is uh, the area that I work on, um, you know, feminist foreign policy, it directs our attention or can potentially direct our attention to issues such as arms trade, um, you know, involvement of people from the margins. Um, and it's focused primarily on women, but others as well who are at the margins, bringing them to the center of discussion. So in all, this is relevant for uh, international politics across the world. And in that sense, it is a universal concept. And um, very quickly to your second question, um, as Maria was just saying, um, was there a question about the context as well, uh, whether these can be adapted to? Yes, so yeah. is, is it something that can be applicable across all contexts? I mean, Maria already mentioned the, and I think the WPS experience is quite helpful here. And Maria mentioned that um, it's generally been interpreted in narrow ways. Uh, but it, I would also like to highlight experiences, especially from the global south, where in fact it has been linked to a whole host of different issues, especially in the Asia Pacific as well. And, uh, you know, and even right, I mean, even 15 years ago, it was being connected to disaster and so on. And at that time, I found it a little confusing. But I can totally see it now that, you know, all of these issues, they, they are connected, as feminists would say. So, and therefore, it can be adapted to different contexts. Thank you. Thank you. Elise, your views on this? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm pretty similar. Um, I think that at in the end of the day, you know, whether we name it feminist or otherwise, the, the root concept, um, you know, we happen to be using, you know, the English language to describe something which I think goes far beyond the, the constraints of the English language. But really, you know, when we look at it, I think the United Nations uh, released a report in 2020 that 90% of people have a deeply ingrained gender bias or bias against women. If we have a think, you know, gendered inequalities affect LGBTIQ plus people by reinforcing heteronormative and patriarchal structures. They influence and they are affected by different cultures everywhere in the world. In other words, gender and gender dynamics are universal. There are many great variations locally, depending on context, depending on every everything, right down to kind of family units, right? Um, but the, the kind of overarching inequalities that we see uh, have so many great consistencies that it really merits being able to kind of hang your hat on a concept that can help drive forwards initiatives that bring people into the centre that have previously been left out or to, to simply redress imbalances. And, you know, I work in the national security space all of the time and, you know, there kind of this diversity of thought is really seen as, you know, we have to be able to see and forecast every single potentiality out there. We need to have the most diverse of opinions so that we can get the best solutions. And I, I really do come back to that and I think that's really important. What I would say, though, is that the, the application and the development of scholarship and of policies and, and of kind of local community leadership has to be deeply local. Uh, it has to have, you know, on-ground voices and it has to be adapted to its context. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of 
mold, if you will. But I also feel like we can share across cultures just to keep moving one step ahead, right? We don't need to reinvent the wheel every time, but the wheel does have to differ depending on the terrain, right? Thank you. And Maria, your thoughts? I think um, I wonder, um, and this is my how I uh, interpret that question. I think um, absolutely we shouldn't think that feminism or people who use feminist, feminist or feminism uh, use it in the same way, it's especially in the context of ongoing or renewed debates around what feminist politics is and who's included, whose bodies are valued and whose um, ways of living and loving are um, seen as worth um, uh, recognizing. Um, so I actually really encourage for those who are watching this is to really interrogate how feminist are the feminist um, labels being used in, in whether it's in foreign policy or in politics to really interrogate that, but actually to do um, the work as well of reading and listening to the, the uh, women and men in other parts of the world um, who are using that concept or perhaps also using other concepts to advance um, really the, the well-being of people and planet. Um, and so I think this is a way for me to kind of really say that, yes, I recognize that um, feminist, the word and the label is indeed contentious, um, not just because it's, um, you know, it's an English um, or it, it excludes, and that's also very important, right? Um, because there are other worldviews that we miss um, just by, referring to feminist um, as a language as a word as a language but I also recognize how especially in this climate um, uh, how deeply um, polarizing that that concept can be too and I openly identify as feminist and and my politics is feminist but um, I know others who do not share that for for various reasons too and so I think the challenge is is to interrogate how do the people who and the institutions who say they are feminists, what do they really mean by that? And how does that square with the advocacies and the agendas of people in the margins, people who are bearing the brunt of insecurities in many parts of the world? And that's to me is an important test to really sh show and lay bare how feminist their feminism is. Excellent points there. Uh, what I might do, we've got some excellent questions in the Q&A. So what I might do is I'm going to uh, combine some of those questions and I'm going to ask three of those questions and then I'll get our panellists to respond to all or one or two of those questions, depending on how uh, you feel. And I'm going to start with a question about uh, civil society and bottom-up approaches. Uh, so this is a question about whether or not uh, foreign policy mandarins actually listen to women or men from the margins uh, or other groups. Uh, so this is from Seema has asked this question and Manakshi has asked a similar question. How do you get uh, mandarins who mostly sit in foreign offices to listen to civil society groups who are generally viewed by security establishments as troublesome noisemakers? So that's question number one about civil society and, and whether or not foreign policy uh, actually listens. Uh, the second question uh, goes to the heart of some of what uh, Elise was uh, particularly talking about as inclusive of broader perspectives of gender identity, particular LGBTQIA+. Uh, and so, Elise, you know, you've talked, talked a bit about that, and I see that there's been uh, chat discussion about that, but our other panellists might have something to contribute on that as well. Uh, and then uh, there was another question about female political representation that I think is a, a really good one from one of our students, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Uh, this is really about whether or not having more women in politics might improve gender mainstreaming in foreign policy as well. Uh, so I might, that's that's plenty to, to go on with, but uh, I might start with you, Samita, and then, and then go back around the panel to Elise and Maria. Okay, thanks, uh, Beck. I did uh, respond to um, Seema's question and, uh, and the point I made was just that, in fact, organizations like Wisconsin and, 
And also Kubernetes and other organizations, certainly from the Indian experience that are having these conversations on feminist foreign policy, foreign policy more generally as well. I mean, they are very well placed to be interlocutors between the foreign policy establishment and you know, their networks uh, in different parts of the country. So bringing them in conversation, those in the margins and the foreign policy establishment. Um, so that was one and um, that I wanted to take. And I wanted to take the, the last, the, the question on um, uh, the effectiveness of feminist foreign policy. How do we measure that? But should I come back to it later? That's fine. If you want to, if you want to talk about um, measure, measuring the, the effectiveness, then go for it. <laughs> okay. So I, I, uh, so one, the important thing, follow the money, right? Where are the resources going? Um, secondly, um, and this, this is from the Hillary doctrine, that when you are looking at devising a foreign policy, when you go visit another country, then you go and speak. I mean, so uh, Hillary Clinton would make it a point to go and speak to civil, women civil society actors. And then, you know, to the extent it uh, is possible, because of course there are very many factors, for that to then be reflected, but certainly make it part of your foreign policy to actually listen to those um, uh, on the margins, not just in your own country, but in different parts of the world. And then the question of representation um, as, as well, uh, to which, I mean, I'm sure Elise can spend uh, speak further on. So that's that's it for me. Thanks. Okay. Any thoughts, Elise, on those questions? I know there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll I'll start with Seema. So thank you for your question. I mean, I, I'm going to start by saying I'm deeply empathetic to kind of foreign policy practitioners, diplomats, you know, folk who are working in these spheres from a kind of policy angle and, you know, that frontline angle. Uh, end of the day, foreign policy, um, government, uh, it's all, it is institutions and they are enduring, but they're also made up of individuals, people who have families and who have a million other responsibilities. And so when you add that in with kind of COVID-19, uh, climate change, you know, political, you know, whatever has happened in the day, uh, you know, emerging disasters, et cetera, et cetera, it's very easy to see how ideas, uh, concepts, um, kind of practical implementation, all of that around feminist foreign policy can fall by the wayside. Um, that's not to excuse that it does, but to recognise that we're operating in a very difficult world, right, and everyone is struggling. So I think from that angle, we also need to really make sure that civil society has the funding and the access to be able to share the load sometimes, but also they have some of the power to be able to influence decisions. Um, likewise, within foreign policy machinery, that there is an active commitment to ongoing learning, to seeking out diverse voices and opinions, and to go beyond existing networks. And I think these are all great things. And I think that through diversifying our foreign policy kind of um, workforce, that is part of the solution, but it's not the whole solution. And, you know, Many countries in the world now have ambassadors for gender equality or ambassadors for women, and I often see it, you know, seems like the only criteria to be an ambassador for women or gender equality um, across the world is sometimes just being a woman. Now, that's not criteria enough. So I really want to see us go beyond this notion of, well, representation is enough by itself. Um, it's not. We need experts out there. So if you're working in the field or if you know folk who are working in the field, you know, bring them along to events like this, push them, get them thinking about embedding this in a real everyday sense. I think from the um, Robert, um, uh, great to hear from you, Robert. Um, so talking about LGBTIQ plus and how this can be inclusive. I mean, I mentioned it before. So many of the gendered social norms and gendered inequalities um, are the at the root of a lot of uh, LGBTIQ people's, you know, uh, marginalization, um, kind of oppression within society, violence, um, uh, you know, criminalization, uh, all of these sorts of things. And I mean, if we look worldwide, there's roughly 70 countries that still criminalize uh, homosexuality or LGBTIQ people or trans identity or, you know, these various things. And a lot of them are in our region. So we, we actually have a really big um, opportunity, feminist foreign policy 
often aims to transform the very norms and kind of inequalities that would also very directly help LGBTIQ plus people. So I think we really need to see a centering. Now, this involves, and I have so many practical tips, but at a baseline, moving beyond the gender binary when we're talking about these issues, removing some of the gendered language that excludes, like trans women, for instance, but also ensuring that our programming includes LGBTI folk, that those who are funded are from the community or who have expertise within the community, um, ensure that we've got education around the intersection of these issues and ensuring that we're reviewing current foreign policies and, and where they may or may not be um, making an impact uh, with these sorts of communities. Um, I think just finally, yes, improving uh uh, female political representation is part of the picture, but it goes beyond gender mainstreaming, um, you know, feminism and kind of feminist principles, intersectional feminist principles go beyond simple representation. I, I think we, you know, uh, Maria and I are part of a workshop right now at, at ANU that was talking about this. We can't just replace, uh, you know, male bodies with female bodies, white bodies with brown bodies. We have to go past this to substantively transform some of these systems that are remaining to be oppressive. Thank you, Elise. That's a good uh, place to introduce Maria back into the conversation. Maria? Oh, it's hard to follow that. I think I um, totally agree with everything that Elise and Samita mentioned. And but I guess I think one thing that I could add um, again is also to really, and I remember, um, you know, Hunter um, opened us with asking, um, you know, uh, where are the women? And really now the next step is really challenging and questioning who is included in these tables, um, uh, foreign policy tables, and then the next step of challenging um, these tables um, and how they are constituted and how which room and which time and, and so on to really go beyond that. Um, and the cost of, of being included um, is also very important. And perhaps just finally, I think um, when looking at some of the um, uh, questions, I guess, um, while we are thinking of, of for feminist foreign policy as a core concept here, I think the core contributions from everyone is that uh, the politics that animates um, feminist foreign policy, the activism, emerge from a much, much longer and richer history. And, and part of that is centering um, those histories and connecting that to the vibrant energies that we are seeing now around feminist foreign policy. Because again, the danger is for those who are really in a being brought to um, feminist foreign policy is to think of it in silo again, um, that feminist foreign policy only applies in foreign policy or that WPS is only applicable in particular areas and so on. Rather, we really need to ground it, I would argue, in that longer history and the new and dynamic um, activisms around um, uh, how do we actually promote the well-being of, of people and planet in current um, uh, uh, environment uh, or crises that we are in. Thank you. And I think we've got um, time for just one more round of questions. We've got a couple of questions uh, that I would like to, to get to in the Q&A. Uh, and Sumedhi, you've already sort of, you already uh, approached this uh, question in, in your last answer, but this one uh, is from Federica, my colleague here at The Trove. Welcome, Federica. Uh, and this is about measuring the effectiveness of, of feminist foreign policy, especially one that is effective for diverse people, uh, which is, you know, some, uh, an important theme, I think, of, of this um, session. Uh, the reason why this question is on Federica's mind is the fear that feminist foreign policy can be just an empty label that states take on as proof of being progressive uh, or as a masculinist strategy. For example, Australia's engagement with the Pacific to, to face China. Uh, so in short, how are we able to measure or at least identify the effectiveness of uh, feminist foreign policy that the next question uh, is about a slightly different context uh, in which there are uh, in, in healthcare workforce, there are uh, people saying no to feminine, no to feminism in some of the healthcare systems in developing countries. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? And is this the same across different countries? So uh, Sumita, I might ask you for your final thoughts and then uh, go back around the panel. 
Okay, so I, I did respond to one of the questions. The second one, I do not have expertise on. So I'll just conclude by saying that um, this has been an excellent panel. Thank you very much. That's my final thought. No worries. I, and I was conscious that you did answer the, the effectiveness uh, the question earlier. Uh, but I did want a chance to, to pose it to Elisa Maria too, because it's a, it's a really important one as well. So Elise? Yeah, so I think that's a great question, Federica, and um, just going to put it out to everyone attending tonight. If there are any people out there who would like to do their PhD on this, I think it's a great topic and one that could, you know, really reap some rewards. I think the reality is that, uh, you know, much like seeing, well, whether more women in diplomacy or in national security equals more feminist foreign policy or national security policy, we don't really know yet. Uh, we're trying to find out these answers, but sometimes there's some real research gaps so I think firstly a call anyone interested in studying it um, please reach out to any of us <laughs> um, but secondly you know just to think about some tangible ways you could start I think that uh, representation within foreign policy kind of machinery is one way to start so diplomacy but also think tanks universities uh, uh, NGOs people who act as foreign policy actors or advisors, um, so representation and experiences um, as a baseline, looking at the types of policies that are made by governments, whether they could be classified as, as feminist or not, um, did they come after a feminist foreign policy was adopted or not, uh, looking at implementation of policies then, but also unintended outcomes. And I think we should always be aware to any unintended outcomes, uh, good or bad, um, and monitoring them as we can. I think one question that would be interesting to ask is, you know, can we have an incomplete feminist foreign policy? And I guess, you know, I go to practical, I'm quite a pragmatic person at the end of the day. And, um, you know, as much as I would love to see a fully fledged and, you know, 100% successful feminist foreign policy somewhere in the world. I mean, let's face it, World Economic Forum, you know, kind of so far is pitching that most of us in um, the Asia-Pacific region will only achieve gender equality in 165 years. I mean, that's too late for me, right? Um, for so many of these issues, I, I just can't see it happening in my lifetime. So therefore, well, what um, would be considered feminist foreign policy success? Is a partial success still okay? Are we still working towards those goals? Something worth, worth um, considering. Yes, Oh, it's good to outline a research agenda. So anybody who wants to do a PhD at ANU with Elise, I think you have a supervisor there. Um, Maria, any final thoughts from you? Hi, Joseph. Thank you um, for um, gathering us today and to really talk about this um, important concept. Um, I really applaud um, uh, the initiative and that I hope um, this would be the start of many more um, critical and open and honest um, conversations around this. So thank you again to everyone who came and to the organizers, Latrobe um, uh, and um, uh, Hunter Nine-Line and Priyanka at Cooper Nine. Thank you. Well, I think you've, you've done my final sign-off too there, Maria. Oh, so, no, no, that's fine. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to, to sit here and, and listen and learn from uh, our panel of experts uh, tonight, Maria, Elise and Samata. And I'd like to thank Hunter for his work in... Uh, doing the logistics, uh, helping out with the logistics of this event, and Diana and Kate at La Trobe Asia, as always, and Priyanka for, for also uh, contributing to this event and by uh, sharing the excellent research that our Kubernetes Initiative has been doing in this space, which was actually um, the, the main reason when, when 9-Line uh, and La Trobe Asia got together to talk about an event, I went, I saw this report at Rosina Dial and I think we should talk about it. So there's real, I think, value in publishing uh, research reports like that and really making sure that we make the time to have these important conversations. And this will, uh, from 
our perspective won't be the end of, of, of the conversation by any means, uh, but another contribution to an incredibly important set of issues. So really grateful to everyone involved. Uh, and thank you to uh, our audience uh, as well. Uh, excellent set of questions, as always. Please follow us uh, at Latrobe Asia um, at 9-line. And I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure what the Twitter handle is for, for Kubernetes Initiative, but I'm sure that you can find it on Twitter. Uh, and if you're interested in any publications or events that Latrobe Asia has coming up, uh, please feel free to join our mailing list. Uh, but I'm going to leave it there uh, and wish you uh, all the best uh, for your evening if you're in Melbourne or for the rest of your day if you're like Hunter and in the United States. Uh, but thanks again. It was a really, really excellent discussion.